Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Today's guest is vet surgeon, business owner and entrepreneur, Dr. Glenn Richards. Currently appearing as one of the sharks on Shark Tank, which is a Channel 10 show about where businesses come and pitch their business for investment. And Glenn is absolutely passionate about business. He's also got a phenomenal business history himself. He was one of the founding managing directors of Green Cross Hospital, was the co-founder and director of Mammoth Pet Holdings, which became Pet Barn, and the two combined and went on to become publicly listed companies here in Australia. Glenn continues to help foster early stage businesses through his investments, through his mentoring, and has a passion about making sure leaders lead with their heart. Throughout this conversation, Glenn also talks about his own non-negotiables to manage all of the busyness, and you'll hear how much he makes his family an absolute priority. It's a conscious choice. It doesn't happen automatically but it's critical whilst you're pursuing business success to also remember what really matters in life. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Glenn Richards. Glenn, welcome to our little booth. <laughs> Thank you, Ali. Great. great to be here and uh, looking forward to the chat. Yeah, great to be sitting down with you. I I have what might sound as an obvious question, but you're a vet- veterinary surgeon, mm-hmm. um, the founding managing director of Green Cross Limited, yep. which has Bet- Pet Barn under its kind of banner. Yep. I have to ask, how many pets do you have at home? <laughs> <laughs> uh, now we have uh, a Bernese Mountain Dog, right. a uh, Cavoodle uh, Alfie and Beau, and we've got one cat and um, three horses. Right, right. It doesn't sound quite as not enough <laughs> between the horses. And, uh, uh, it, it is a busy household, yes. and and, uh, and it always when you're trying to get away for holidays, finding uh, yes, of houseminders that can can manage uh, dogs, cats, and horses. And it's ho- always tricky. Yeah, of course. I hadn't thought of that aspect. <laughs> what was the pull to becoming a vet? Look, I was um, I grew up in Western Queensland, a little country town called Richmond, and uh, we had sheep and cattle stations. And um, so, at the start of grade eleven, and just before I went went back to boarding school, I went to boarding school on the Gold Coast. And uh, my dad and I were driving out, um, checking waters and boundaries. And uh, dad said, "What, what are you going to do when you leave school?" And uh, I said, "Oh, look, I've given it a bit of thought. I'm thinking about doing accountancy." And he's looked at me with this sort of crazy expression on his face. He said, well, what are you mad? He said, why don't you do something useful? I said, what do you mean <laughs> do something useful? He said, <laughs> said uh, why don't you do something like veterinary science that, that you know, could be useful? And I said, oh, look, I'll give that some thought. So the bizarre thing is I, I went back to school, changed a couple of subjects so I could open up and broaden my options for when I finished grade 12 and had a year off between grade 12 and university and um, sort of found myself in veterinary science. Right. So good old dad. Yeah, <laughs> put that idea in my head. Yeah. Was it ever a um, a pull to then go back to the land if that's where you'd kind of grown up? And yeah. I imagine your dad even kind of saying that, going, this is quite practical. Absolutely. And, and you bump into all these kids that have grown up in, in rural Australia and you always have to do a trade or a profession mm. just in case. So when you go back, just in case you've got something up your sleeve. So that, it's always that, that mentality. And I guess 
doing veterinary science was was there. Um, I think the plan was to go back on the land. Um, but the thing that happened was I, I while I was at university, I'd go home every university holiday and uh, my job was generally Christmas holidays. Mum and Dad and, and the, the younger kids would, would head, head off on holidays and my job was to stay home and make it rain through uh, Christmas. And um, five years straight uh, was hell of a time for, for a drought. Um, and I got to the end of university and realised that you can't really do a lot in Western Queensland, so there's no irrigation. It's straight relying on, on um, rainfall and uh, realised that part of my personality is I've got this need to be in control of as many parameters as you can and watching rain clouds and, and watching commodity prices for, for wool and beef roll, roll all over the place didn't quite marry up, I think, to some of my core elements of my personality. Yeah, I can imagine the rain dance, like, you know, doing as many rain dances <laughs> well, as you possibly yeah, can. There's nothing or... <laughs> more frustrating. When you've got a drought, watching rain clouds build in the afternoon oh. and then nothing happens overnight. So it, it got to a point I just said, Dad, look, um, I, I'm just struggling with the whole idea of, of ending up in Western Queensland. And by that stage, I'd uh, spent some time in London and, and developed my companion animal skills uh, as, as a vet. And, and that was really the the, uh, the move from realising I wasn't going to end up in Western Queensland. I was going to do something, um, I guess, in the city with control of more of the parameters that, that affected your, your day-to-day life. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that doesn't rely on oh, <laughs> prices going clouds. up and down because exactly. of rain. So was it then getting into the clinical kind of area? Look, um, I did a research master's uh, in cattle reproduction and and uh, and, and re- reproduction affecting productivity in, in cattle. Um, when I finished that master's degree, um, rural industries were still very flat, commodity prices were low, still droughts ongoing, and uh, so I made the decision to head to London for a couple of years. And, and um, my first job was in London as a companion animal vet and uh, realised I actually enjoyed the interaction with pet owners and, and um, being the trusted advisor for the family pet and uh, really immersed myself as a clinician in, in veterinary science for many, many years. So can, uh, that term companion animal, so that's the, the household pet? Correct. So yeah. look, I have a running battle with, with the veterinary profession. You know, the lecturers love to call them smallies and largies. Right. And it really gets <laughs> under my skin in a big way because largies are production animals. Right. Really, that's your, okay. your cattle, your sheep, your dairy animals. Your Performance animals are your, your racehorses and, right. and perhaps even uh, greyhounds. Uh, and companion animals, those that are there as part of your life and being part of the family is, is your dogs, your cats, your rats, your gerbils, your your chinchillas, your whatever, reptiles. So, so companion animals really engages with that emotional value of the family pet being part of your your. You know, family, I guess. Was that part of the draw for you? Look, I, I really and thoroughly enjoyed interacting with, and this is where I really engage with in, in London, with um, pet owners that are really passionate family pet owners. And uh, I, like, look, I really thoroughly enjoyed it and just went, look, I'm going to, I guess, stay in this space because it gives me a high degree of satisfaction when you can um, keep an animal healthy or keep, keep a pet healthy or make it better. And there's nothing more fun or I guess more heroic um, mm. than, than helping the family pet um, continue on their journey of, of having a lot of fun and times with the family. And um, so, I, I, look, I really thoroughly enjoyed that Imagine side. you become part of the family in well, some regard. Well, you regard. do. As a, as a vet, you are the trusted advisor. You have mm. deep conversations with the pet owner and you engage as a clinician with the pet. So it's an interesting relationship. So yeah. we call our, our pet owners our clients and our pets are our patients. 
I love that. I yeah. love it. Is there a bit of pecking order amongst the vets, amongst the, the biggies and smallies? <laughs> oh, look, I, <laughs> I, I think those who are in the largies or in the production <laughs> animal space used to, I think, scoff a little bit. Um, but the reality is um, as, as companion animal vets, we know that we add serious value to society through the way we look after and, and engage with the family and the family pet and, and um, look after the emotional well-being of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess from the production animal side, they see themselves doing something very important in terms of, of um, production animals and, and ensuring our farmers are you know able to produce yeah. and be quite productive. So there's just a different men- mentality. Yeah. Did you always have a bit of a business bent to the way that you think? Um, and I guess I ask that question, I'm a health professional as well with humans, not, yeah. not animals, but often um, in that industry, a business now doesn't always, doesn't always kind of go together. Was that always part of your the way that you think? Yeah, look, I think growing up in, in Western Queensland in a small business household where we discussed business all the time, becomes part of your DNA, and I, and I no doubt that's carried over to me as a clinician. Um, but it is it is interesting. I, I'm involved with a, a multitude of health industries now, from GP clinics to day hospitals, podiatry and physiotherapy clinics. Um, so I get and fully understand the importance of, of the professional clinician. Um, and I do often say, you know, I used to say I'd wander into a vet clinic and go, you know what vets do really well? And they'd go, what? And i go, do really good veterinary work. So what? let me worry about the business side and let me try and create a workplace that allows you to be absolutely fully empowered and able to do your best as a clinician. And, and that's a good marriage that, 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 you know, it's empowering and enabling for those frontline clinicians to do the best they can be. And if they do want to swap over into a, into a more business setting, um, that's their choice. But a lot of people go into those sort of professions because they have a very giving and nurturing nature. And, and I do fully respect that. Oh, absolutely. It's almost you see people relieve, and I imagine you would too. It's like, let me just do my my yep. craft and, yep. and really be present in those moments. Exactly, and and look, that's why I, I really enjoy the health space. That that I take that responsibility very seriously. That we create workplaces that are better and more supportive for our clinicians, um, have all the tools and facilities and equipment they need to do their thing. Be it a vet or a podiatrist or a or a physio or a GP doctor. Um, and, and, you know, it is quite good when you understand if you've been in the front line and then you're also now trying to support them in the back end in terms of um, the way we, we support our frontline clinics, mm-hmm. um, you, you find you can do a really good job in, in, in that program. Yeah, the empathy of understanding yeah. both of that. Describe for me a little bit the journey from clinical days into into business. Well, the, the, the fast track and, and uh, is... is uh, I wrote a business plan on the Trans-Siberian Express as I was coming back from London to Australia, wrote a business plan for a network of veterinary hospitals across Australia. Quite quite simply, I thought um, uh, just before I, I got on the train, I, I negotiated to buy a, a veterinary hospital in Townsville and uh, rang my dad and said, Dad, look, I've uh, done a handshake deal to buy a vet practice in Townsville. How do you feel about providing a loan and, and uh, guaranteeing some loans from the bank? And he said, look, if you... Uh, really serious about it. I want to see a business plan to understand what you're up to here. And I said, okay. okay, done. I'll write a business plan. So tram- going across the Trans-Siberian Express, I wrote a business plan for buying one practice in Townsville. And the longer the train trip went on, it's a seven-day trip, the bigger and bolder the plan became. And I think there was a little bit of vodka and uh, <laughs> shyacking going on on the train. But it, by the time I got to back to Australia, I had developed a plan for I guess a, a network of hospitals, more a franchise model. But um, I got back to Townsville, 
bought my first practice with uh, my parents' support. Um, we evolved that from one practice into five in Townsville. We then formed a co-op with some some guys from Brisbane, uh, John Odlam and Keith Knight, and, and uh, that co-op grew to, to 17 practices in a, in a co-op, prov- and we'd had a central management company providing some services to our frontline clinics, a bit of bookkeeping, a bit of marketing, a uh, bit of benchmarking, coaching, buying group. Um, that then evolved into a corporate listing, so we... Um, teamed up with a guy who had optioned up some some vet practices. He had no idea what he was up to. Uh, so we then hijacked the agenda, is the best way to describe it, and we then rolled on to a, uh, an IPO to, uh, to be able to settle the practices that this guy had optioned up. And um, so in 2007, we commenced Green Cross Limited with about 32 clinics. Um, while that was going on, I, I teamed up with a couple of mates out of Sydney. Um, I was just about to open a big pet store in Townsville with a couple of colleagues, and um, they came up from Sydney to have a look at what I was up to with my pet store called Pet HQ. Uh, next thing, uh, we formed an investment group. We bought uh, six pet stores in Sydney called Pet Barn. Uh, the guys in the Pet Barn camp grew that that network uh, fairly aggressively as we rolled onto it with our veterinary uh, group. Um, and over a period of about seven or eight years, we were growing two networks side by side. I was a director of the of the pet stores and a shareholder, and I was a managing director and founder of Green Cross on, on the other side. And 2014, we, we uh, convinced the boards that it was a good idea to merge the whole thing together and start thinking about the pet owner from pretty much a cradle to grave concept mm. that as, as uh, our kittens and puppies grow, that, that we could provide retail services, um, training, grooming and veterinary care for, for, a, for a whole of life approach to a, to a puppy or kitten. That's a pretty impressive train ride business plan to come up with. <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly, it certainly <laughs> did get out of control. And, and look, if you look at Green Cross today, we've got oh, nearly 6,000 employees, full-time, part-time, casual, and we've got uh, probably going to do about 800 million revenue this year, and, and uh, we are an ASX 200 mm. company. Was there a particular, do you remember a moment or a particular point in time when you went, this is taken off? <laughs> You know, I think life is a journey, isn't it? You, yeah. Every challenge that comes along, you just lift and go after that challenge. And yeah. so there was never, you know, we had a big, hairy, audacious goal that we'd be this this network of veterinary practices across Australia in the, the pet store side, the pet barn camp. Um, we had a, a, a big vision for becoming 20% of the the, 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 uh, the pet care market. So that we had the, yeah. the big, hairy, audacious goals out there, but you still got to do the mechanical execution, sort of get the funding, form the team, um, find the right locations or acquire good veterinary hospitals or whatever we were doing. And I think you just get in the action and just keep rolling along. And, and every time a big challenge comes along, you, your team and, and you lift. And, and a really important part as these businesses grow is, is recognising um, what you're good at and what you're not good at and realising that if you are going to grow, you've got to bring others into the team and you've got to trust them deeply to get on and, and share the vision and be part of, I guess, the team that delivers the business plan. And um, um, in the pet store side and, and on the veterinary practice side, um, I think both management teams were very good at bringing others into the into the senior management team and middle management teams and, and evolving a business that could cope with growth and, and scaling up. And having the right people and just that vulnerability to go, right, this is the bit that's not me. Who Abs- else do I know? Uh, yeah, that's, it's, it, you know, it's trouble with, 
when you're in your in your 20s, I call it a humble arrogance because you just don't know what you don't yep. know. As you get into your 30s and 40s, you start realising that you're not good at everything. <laughs> and as soon as you start flicking over and, and re- stop being defensive about the fact that you can't be good at everything, mm-hmm. you start bringing on some great people into your team and you start trusting them and, and uh, giving them the accountability and the responsibility to get on with, with their role in the camp or in, in the team to deliver the big picture. What's the area that you... Um are drawn to? So, you know, in terms of your own skills and capabilities when it comes to business, what's the bit that you go, that's my bit? Well, I'm a typical vet. I think I'm good at everything. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's why we do vet and we're, we're um, good at, what do they call it? Master of nothing, but but quite good generalists. Um, but look, at the end of the day, I, I, I can read a spreadsheet. I can read a, a financial, financial accounts, not too bad. I, I guess a lot of CEOs should be good at understanding the market and understanding how to engage and communicate with the customer you're going after. So, um, you know, is that part of that veteran, like your exposure? I imagine to I, that. I, um, I think so, but I think in, in any industry, I think core to a good CEO is is deeply understanding what the customer wants, and then how to communicate with that customer. I have to admit, I you know. Any marketing people that I've brought on are always much, much better at it than me, but mm. you still have to have a, a basic understanding. It's a bit like being a generalist uh, vet. As a general, generalist, a CEO should be able to communicate with his his team around him or around her and have that chat with, with a good marketer, a good finance person or a good ops person or a good HR person and come up with a plan to support to support them deliver whatever they have to do as part of the plan. But I think probably, probably the number one thing that I became good at, I guess, was just being a good leader in, in deeply, humbly respecting people that worked in our organisation, thanking thanking them for the role that, that they did um, and, and pretty much starting to get out of their way so they could get on and deliver, but giving very clear expectation around the outcomes we were looking for. So I guess it's almost, you know, be, be, be an inspiring leader. So not don't tell anyone what to do, but but agree where we're trying to get to and then give them the tools they need to, to, to get to help them in, in that in that role. So I think great leadership is very much around um, getting a good team together, making very clear what you're trying to achieve and then giving them the tools they need to, to deliver their part of the, the great game of business. And to understand that this is the component that will help us to and your vision that you described. A- absolutely. And look, and especially the bigger you get, the bigger your team is going to be, and you've got to create a, a um, an environment that that evolves trust among the senior management, the middle management, the, f- the frontline business that you're looking after. So you've got to have a culture of trust, um, so that we can have really authentic conversations about what is working and what's not. Mm-hmm. And and um, as soon as you stop being defensive and start listening to people and go, I've just genuinely want to know what is going on so I can make this organisation better and listen to customers, listen to employees, listen to your senior managers, listen to your middle managers and then making sure you put in place, I guess, strategies around resetting your business or your company um, to respond to the what the employees expect, uh, to what your customers are demanding of you and making sure that there is this culture that, that stays open to new ideas and open to listening so once you stop listening to your, your frontline employees and your frontline customers, you're gone. How often do you see that um, coming into play? Like, I guess, in cultures that they talk about trust, um, but it's not always there when you scratch the surface. Well, you know, I, I still defies logic that you bump into CEOs or, or senior management teams that are just either they're arrogant 
or naive or, or just have no idea, just completely go against what you think would be a, just what a common sense approach mm. would be. It's straight out common sense. You know, classic is Bunnings going to the UK. You walk through Bunnings UK and they've, they've got, you know, it's coming into summer and they're selling heaters. You know, this common sense you're taking yeah. what works in Australia and suddenly dumping it into the UK market and wondering why they blew it up. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the same for me in any business. What you're wanting is simple, deep dialogue with employees and customers, overlay some common sense and then work out where you're going to put your resources to help grow the company. And you've only got two things to allocate, the time of, of your, your management yeah. team yep. and your money. Where, where are you going to spend the money to, to grow or expand or improve the business? So listen well and then allocate appropriately. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> Don't put it in It's not wrong rocket areas. science. No. Your customers will tell you what you're doing well and what you're doing badly. Your employees, if yeah. you can get their trust, because a lot of employees just turn up and cover their day job. A lot of middle management will turn up and cover their day job. They'll never get sacked because they're doing enough. But once you get their trust and their respect, they'll, they'll go the next, you know, they'll, they'll give more of their, their discretionary effort, they'll give more of their discretionary intelligence. And part of that is coming up and helping evolve ideas to grow the business. Yeah, they'll spot something that spot others, something. others won't see. And I think it is so worth it. We, we often, in the kind of work that we do, we often talk about work is a third of your life. And if you're not loving it, like, <laughs> it, it affects those other two uh, thirds. Right? Ali, I totally 100% agree. If, you, if you're not passionate, you're not excited about turning up to work, then you probably either got to change yourself or change your workplace. It's that simple, and it's you know, you're spot on. It's such a big part of your life. Then you may as well make sure you feel empowered and passionate and enriched. Yeah, yeah. So if you're not, find a way or yeah. get out of something yeah. else. So obviously you've been on Shark Tank the yeah. last couple of seasons. Um, today we're sitting here in Brisbane. Between yourself and Steve, we've got Queensland covered on Absolutely, both, both, both ends. ends. Do you yeah, reckon we... we can get an all-Queensland panel eventually? <laughs> uh, I think uh, the rest of Australia would hate that. <laughs> too, too obnoxious Queensland is bookending book the, the business. But uh, look, there's a, it's a wonderful dynamic. I really enjoy the, the other sharks and, and uh, the dynamic we have. Uh, can get a little bit bruising when you're on set and we're listening to pitches and we're having a crack at each other about things, but mm. we actually do offset, um, ha- have a res- strong respect for each other and we do and can be, you know, can quite s- happily socialise with each other, but it's a bit like a game of rugby, you know, you roll onto the set and it's on. Right, yeah. How did the opportunity come up for you? Uh, very accidental. I, I uh, was having a sabbatical. I'd, we'd merged Green Cross and Pet Barn and created this very large integrated pet care business. And uh, after about six months, I decided it had grown to a very large size and, and that it was time for me to back out. I'd been a public company CEO for eight years um, and it was time to give a bit, bit more time back to my family, uh, have a little bit more time for me. So I resigned from the management team and moved over to just a non-executive director role. And um, I was having a sabbatical, so I was about seven months in just having a, a year off, basically doing nothing. My wife claims that I said I was retiring, and I claim that I said I was retiring from <laughs> Green Cross, so there is a bit of tension around this. So anyway, retired from Green Cross, and uh, seven months into my sabbatical, um, I'd met Steve Baxter at a, a World Entrepreneur uh, Ernst Young program in Monaco, and, and he invited um, Lisa and I out to dinner with, with uh, uh, Emily and, and uh, him for, for dinner. Right at the start of the dinner, Steve said, hey, um, 
John McGrath's leaving Shark Tank. We need a new shark. Can I put your name up? I said, absolutely not. Not interested. I'm very happy. I've uh, got a really balanced life at the moment. I've had eight years as a public company CEO. I'm just enjoying cruising along at this point of time. Anyway, the dinner went on and on, and um, by the end, we'd drunk two or three bottles of red wine, and uh, he then, the old one too, got me drunk and, and <laughs> pitched tr- it again. Pitched again. <laughs> and uh, so he pitched that, um, you know, how about we put your name up? So there's a whole bunch of names got put up by, by various sharks and um, turned up on, um, uh, on on the Channel 10 set and we did a, um, a, a screen test and a bunch of the producers were throwing questions at me and we're chatting about my journey and having a chat. And um, sure enough, about three days later, Tara, the producer, rang me and said, oh, look... Um, uh, we're keen for you to be the new panellist on Shark Tank. And I said, look, I, I haven't even discussed this with my family. <laughs> and uh, what's it mean? And they said, well, we need you. Uh, in, we start filming in a week's time and you need the whole of November, the whole month wiped out. And I said, ah, oh, bloody hell. I said, let me uh, let me chat with, with my family over the weekend. So on a Sunday night, I'm sitting around the dinner table and said, righto, guys, been offered this gig on Shark Tank. And uh, I obviously chatted with my wife yeah. about it, but the kids didn't know what I was talking about. They said, what's Shark Tank? Yeah. So I had to explain what Shark Tank was about. You know, it's an entrepreneur's program. People come on and pitch and I sit there working out whether I want to invest. And uh, I said, oh, look, I'm not that keen to do it. And my kids said, what, what's wrong with your dad? I said, what do you mean? You know, when we go to school, you always say we have to step up and have a go, you know, put your names forward and, and, and have a go. And, that, and I said, look, to be honest, I'm, I'm actually worried about being or looking like a dickhead on national TV. And they said, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'll look like a dickhead on national TV. <laughs> All right, if that's the worst that's going to happen, I'll give it a crack. So that's how we ended up go. on Shark Tank. Nothing like your kids bringing your yeah, own exactly. philosophies back well, at you. Exactly. That's the other one too coming at you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what, um, I mean, imagine the you've seen such a variety of pitches, such a variety of businesses, and it's everything that's kind of on there. Uh, what are you looking for when when someone comes through those doors? It's always bizarre because we have no idea what's coming. We walk on set. We see the set already set up by, by the... Uh, uh, by the guys, and, and so we've got a bit of a hint what the product might be about. But uh, until the, the entrepreneur comes out and pitches, we've got really don't know any idea. I, I, this season, I've, I've you know, first pitch of the season was coconut bowls. I've walked on and went coconut bowls and sat down and went, this is going to be terrible. Turns out the guy's got a wonderful business. He's got a wonderful community of people that follows it and we all want to invest. There was a feeding frenzy. feeding (laughs) frenzy. So you just had no idea what you're going to get. So what I generally look at is I I do want... um, to deeply understand the product or the service that, that is being provided. I want to, want to inherently understand it. And then I have a deep look at the um, the entrepreneur. Do I like them? Are they across their numbers? Um, do they know their competition? Do they know their industry well? There's got to be a, a high degree of competency and a high degree of char- charisma that, that draws me to them. Uh, and then at the end of the day, you'll hear me get stuck into them about their numbers. I want to know where we're going over the next two or three years. So there's a plan and, and um, it really bothers me that, that so many entrepreneurs turn up and they haven't done their homework, even though they've, well, this is season four now, um, haven't done their work around um, what their numbers look like and where we're going. So they've got to be able to paint a really powerful picture of the future and that I want to get on that journey with them. Mm. Yeah, no, it's um, it's certainly something we've seen. Um 
my husband and I love watching it and we've been watching it for years, but oh, you've good. seen it over the years and that's exactly one of those things. You know that question's coming. It's coming. Know <laughs> your numbers. Are you where are we going? What's going to happen? And um, But, but it, look, the entrepreneurs, uh, it, it's frightening. I, you know, I've practiced walking up the tank myself, yeah. doors opening, here's, here's the panellist sitting there. That is tough gig. That's mm. a tough gig. So I've got deep respect for anyone who turns up on Shark Tank. Obviously, they're, they're looking for a hopefully a mentor, hopefully some investment and a great promo or publicity position for them. platform to, to go to, further. To yeah. go further. Is there anything else that kind of frustrates you? And it may not even be on Shark Tank, but whether you're talking to other entrepreneurs who you might be thinking about investing or not, um, aside from the financials, is there anything else that you go, oh, I wish they'd... Oh, look, they've got to be mentorable. The, the, the reality is that you get to a certain size as a small or medium business and an arrogance starts creeping in because you're getting or becoming successful. And uh, I think the great entrepreneurs always stay incredibly humble, that they're always worried about or have got a chip on their shoulder about what might happen next, what what will come out of the from the side, and there's always factor X. So for, for me, I want an entrepreneur who's willing to listen to everyone else's opinions. They don't have to take it. These are people's thought bubbles. And when, when small business and medium business owners or even CEOs stop listening and that arrogance sets in, you know there's a problem with the organisation. Um, so staying humble in business and, and be ready for whatever else is coming in the marketplace, be it external or internal issues that might arise, then you're always scanning and, and, and resetting the company or resetting the business around what might be coming in the pipeline. Um, you know, For us as retailers in Australia, Amazon coming to town has got us all edgy mm-hmm. and, and therefore we're trying to understand what Amazon's vulnerabilities are, how we may be able to use them for our own, our own success in our own businesses or how do we neutralise their power. You know, they're phenomenal at logistics. They're phenomenal at the engagement with their customer. They're phenomenal at preempting what we might want in society. So we've got to keep an eye on that. And sometimes, you know, uh, if, if, if you think you can handle them, then you're in trouble. Whereas you stay humble and, and just keep tactically and strategically trying to deal with some of the, the parameters coming, then, you know, you've got a, a better chance of success. And it makes the game better anyway. Like of course it makes your customer service better. It makes oh, you come back to what you're good e- at. Exactly. You know, the, it's funny. When I first opened my first vet practice in Townsville, all the other vets really really didn't like me because I was prepared to work harder and longer and smarter than all my opposition. I was going to work longer hours. That made the, everyone else have to open seven days a week. I opened seven, first practice I opened seven days a week, fully open. Uh, and I was a one vet practice at the time. I can imagine in Townsville, <laughs> what are you doing on yeah, Sunday? <laughs> I was a one vet practice for about six months, so mm. that hurt a bit. Uh, but the reality is, you know, you, you just every aspect of your business, you're always trying to improve it. You cannot accept status quo as useful. It's not. You've got to challenge every part of your business, be it the way you you deal with your customer through to the product or service you're providing. And hopefully, hopefully you're staying relevant to the marketplace. We've got so many, uh, Australia's such a, I guess, a hotbed of innovation, entrepreneurs, ideas, and yet so many of them don't make it. There's don't such a high me. failure rate. <laughs> don't start me. You know, we are a really incredible, innovative country. You know, we have, uh, I think we rate somewhere in the top eight in our ECD for innovation. That when you have a look at the growth of our companies, these startups moving to an entrepreneurial phase, I think um, it's sitting at something like a 97% fail or fail to grow out of that startup community. So it's only it's 3% actually become entrepreneurial 
companies. And, and, the, and the definition there is um, three years in a row, they grow their workforce by 10% or more. So we see only 3% grow. And and big part of that is I think some of the... the, the, the we've set up this, this amazing country, but we're now over-regulated, we're over-governed, we're big government, big public service, incredible amount of bureaucracy. We have to justify their existence through regulation uh, and through bigger taxes. So I think our taxation system definitely needs an overhaul, company tax rate down, but I think we simply got to bite the bullet and lift our GST and reduce all personal income tax. Um, on regulation, you ever tried to do a little build a house? Yeah. You know, 47 different regulations just starting to get, you know, it takes months and months and months before that building can commence because of the regulations that are in there. And you say, apply the same things to our businesses now. So over-regulation, over-governed. Um, workplace tax, you know, taxes are a big issue. And the last one is, is uh, well, the last two, workplace relations. Um uh, a good a good company deeply understands the, the the synergistic relationship between really positive employee and employer relations. Mm. Great bosses make sure that they understand where the number one asset of the company is. That's your people, and you look after them, you nurture them, you grow them, you educate them, you skill them up, and you work on your culture all the time. And they're great businesses. And we've got the unions not recognising that, and they're fighting like hell to to stay relevant to society. So they got to disrupt as many workplaces as they can in the in the view that, that unions need to exist. Mm. We don't need it anymore as, and we don't need large government. Small government, less regulations, um, more flexible workplace industrial relations so we can... More of a conversation, more I think, of a conversation let's get it with, happening quickly. Yeah, with our employees. And then the last one, unfortunately, is um, there's a lack of, of um, entrepreneurial spirit in our investment community. So, um, you know, the business has got to be generating serious amount of dough before they'll step up and invest. And being a, an investor of very early stage companies, um, you know, I get in way before venture capital and private equity now uh, and grow it up to a point where we can actually then hand it on to venture capital and private equity for a different valuation metric. But the reality is uh, there's not enough early stage funds supporting these early stage companies because you you will end up bumping into the valley of death. if you As you grow a company, you've got to put more people and bodies into them. Your, your payroll gets bigger before you start generating reasonable profits. And it's the same as you produce product. You know, you start getting big product orders. You've got to then finance those orders going through your factories. And, and cash flow's and, and, gone. So your cash yeah. flow's gone. So it's all about cash flow, recognising, trying to keep step with your expenses and your cash flow and, and keep you going. And there's just times in a business that you need a, a, you know, a cash flow funder to keep you going and get you through that, that deep valley of death that can take your whole business off you. Because people are going overseas to get that, whether Absolutely. it's Hong Kong or the US so, or... Well, you go to Israel, Singapore, you know, US, they do that, do that job better. The, the, the early stage investment funds are getting a little earlier and assisting those companies through that early stage of, of cash flow crisis. Yeah, so Australia needs, we need to have a better, <laughs> better support or a better way of actually going, let's let's jump into these investments. I understand one of the things that you love seeing those businesses is, is the, where they get to that, let's scale, let's grow. Yeah. Let's go that really fast growth. Um, and you just described, obviously, the financial kind of valley of death, the yeah. pitfall that can kind of happen. And certainly that it can be the point where businesses are their most vulnerable just Absolutely. at that point when they're about to take off. Um, what are the other pitfalls that you've kind of seen for fast growth companies? Uh, look, I think it's back to the people factor. Um, founders not recognising what they're good at and what they're bad at early enough. So bringing on a, a 
a team that that is complementary and, and, and collaborative, but have, have those skill sets developed so that everyone's playing to their strengths and the founders are neutralising some of their weaknesses through bringing better people into the business. Um, being very deliberate in, in developing a financial roadmap, so making sure you... Um, evolve cash flows and forecast at least three years out so you can map when those cash flow crises may come along and you are preempting your funding needs. So if you are successful in getting, say, a, a, a purchase order from Bunnings, which is going to be massive, so you're preempting those sort of things. Um, so get your, your people thing right, get your cash flow and your financial forecast right, and then evolve a team that can execute the business plan. So all those little tactics, those how, how we're going to get there. Um, and so put some time into developing a plan or a business plan and bringing the right people in and following that financial roadmap. So, you know, you see a good analyst with a spreadsheet and they capture the essence of the business and then paint out a, a clear picture on where you've got to go. You, there's your roadmap. And then the hard part is the execution phase. How, how do you do it? And that's what good CEOs with a, a good team then fill in the gaps. They paint the picture. So the, the financial roadmap is there's all your dots mm. and now let's fill in all the other stuff and add some colour to it and there's your business plan with a financial roadmap, with a marketing plan, with a customer engagement plan, with a you know, consumer communication plan, all, all wrapped in. Here's... What we, where we get it manufactured or here the people that we need to bring on and this is so there's all about timing and so that you spend the time on the plan it makes life a lot easier so when you're aiming to get somewhere in the next 10 years you still got to have these three year phases that you keep cycling through um, and and um, a big part of it is trying to preempt or, or evaluate what those risks are coming down as I said cash flow people factor. You've got to have good people coming into the business. Yeah. So who are we hiring? But I yep. imagine even that cash flow or if you were to get an investment, how are we doing the marketing so we're valuable and, and, and that investment's easy to get. We're not spending it, six months on it. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, here's the marketing plan. Well, here's what I've got to invest to, to communicate with our customers. Mm. This is what the cost is. This is the expected response. And so doing those little test um, and pilot programs so you get an understanding of the response rates and, and you can then build a pretty sophisticated financial plan. Um, so having internal or external resources or capable of building a, a financial roadmap with you. Fast growth, and you, you describe some of the, obviously, the, the natural tensions inside a business, but as a business founder, as an owner, um, this is your heart and soul. It is kind of out there. You And you've already done often a hard slog. There can be um, some other stretch marks in a more personal kind of life, yeah. and you're know, impacting on family, impacting on um, friendships, or just even sense of community outside of work. Because it's all about that. Yeah. What What advice would you have for people to kind of make sure they don't lose sight of themselves, but also really invest in those those critical, um, essential relationships? Because there's many, many stories of people going through divorce or yeah. um, getting really significantly unwell in those moments. So I'm a, um, a classic Gen X. 1965 I was born, so I think I'm the first of the Gen X. I'm hoping I'm right. Um, and, and I think we, we, we'd never commit for too hard, for too long. You know, we're all, always a reasonable balance around having hard work and also playing hard at the mm -hmm. same time. When, when we decided 
to do Green Cross Limited. When I was five clinics in Townsville and, and uh, we're bringing it all together to put 32 together and to list it, I said to my wife, there's a, so darling, we're, we're thinking about moving from Townsville to Brisbane um, to list this company and they want me to be managing director, all the other crew, um, or we can stay here and we'll continue to run the vet practice here in Townsville and perhaps I can go into politics. And uh, <laughs> anyway, the bags were packed at the front door and we're heading to Brisbane pretty quickly. But I said, when we get to Brisbane, between Monday and Friday, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll travel anywhere in Australia to grow our network and to engage with our people and to, to get the culture um, right. Um, but Friday night I'll be home and I'll stay home till Monday morning. So weekends for the family and Monday to Friday for the business. Um, and wasn't a lot left in there for, for any personal stuff for me, like golf or whatever, but I kept my physical activity up, my running, uh, because I could grab half an hour to an hour and, and that was my exercise generally on a daily basis. Um, so trying to keep physically well, try and keep my family as the reason I do all this, my, my wife and my children, mm. and, and keep them as the centre of my universe and all this stuff happens. And, and I was reading one thing, I can't remember the author's name, but there's a lovely chapter on counterbalance. And I think it, it, he grabbed it just about right because we all, so we've got to have work-life balance. Yeah. But his, his comment on it was, uh, I think, right, at times you allow yourself to go out of balance and it's almost like a, a zigzaw uh, uh, sort of going from one point to the next. And, and that's when I was leading Green Cross as the CEO, was deep into the growing Green Cross, deep into making sure I was looking after my family because they were precious to me. Um, and then now that I'm, I'm a, more of an investor, mentor and, and um, uh, advisor, um, I, I tend to not be so out of control or so out of balance going either way. It's time for my family, time for me, and I support my CEOs that I, I, I invest in or my founders that I invest in. Yeah, so imagine when it's so intense, then you need to be able to counterbalance. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like that concept of yeah. being able to come in and, and do that. But when you are really passionate about something, there's no semblance of balance. You know, you, when you are serious about growing or, or evolving, be it someone training for an elite sport or someone training to do a marathon or someone d growing it's a business, consuming. it's consuming. Yeah. And that you do need that passion and drive, um, but just make sure you, you don't, you know, destroy too many relationships in the process. And unfortunately, a lot of us forget that, you know, that we're, they're doing it for the family or the partner uh, to have a better life and somehow they get destroyed in the crossfire. And it's important to remind yourself that you, you can be out of control on one aspect of your life, but you then got to pay it back, deeply pay it back to, to the other part of your life. I think you even said before we... Um started recording, it's like it's it's part of that, you know, what you take out of the bank, you've got to, you've got to reinvest yeah, back in. Absolutely. Right? So there's the, and, and relationships are like that, aren't they? They are a bank account and, and you've got to keep investing in it and you take a bit back. So when I was growing Green Cross, I was obviously doing some serious withdrawals yes. and um, trying to to do this, you know, deposit on weekends. But mm. now that we're well past that stage in my life, it's it's far more calming, far more, you know, good good family holidays. I take every school holiday. We go we go holidaying or go to Noosa or we have a place mm. up, up on the Sunshine Coast. Um, so, you know, there is a, a, a much better phase of our life going on now. Yeah. How old are your kids? Um, 18, 17 and 11. Right, yeah. So, so it's a busy household. Yeah, yeah, exciting journeys that they're yeah, it is. And, and as well. That, that age, we're just reflecting on it over the weekend. So one at university, one in final year high school, one in grade five. Um, but it's almost the, the change of the, – so the two of them, two of the girls have got cars so they can yeah. get to school or get to uni. We don't have to worry about that aspect. So we're out on acreage, so we, we need – 
we need some sort of transport me- methodology, but we're down to, down to just worrying about one again in terms of time commitment. Yeah, yep. I mean, obviously, emotionally, I care deeply about all of them. Uh, but the you know the reality is it's it's nowhere near as busy as it has been. Yeah. So, so all aspects are starting to calm down. Different phase. Different, different phase. phase. In terms of your own energy management, you talked you said before about running. So is that yep. something? Is that one of your non-negotiables? It is, and and. It's something I spend a lot of time with my with vets. So veterinary surgeons are, are notoriously bad on on managing themselves, and and we have I think one of the highest suicide rates mm. of any of the professions in Australia. I've heard and that the UK. actually, yeah. Um, and so it's about recognising fatigue, be it physical physical fatigue, emotional f- fatigue is a massive one in the veterinary world. And so I suppose I grew up understanding that and making sure I was in touch with myself. So when you're really getting tired, be it physical, so I can sleep well, you know, make yeah. sure you get pl- plenty of sleep, diet's good, there's always exercise as part of my, my mm. lifestyle. So so you, did you set that up early? Was very that something much you were so. very conscious about? Very much so. Right, right through university, I always I, I ran and went to the gym, uh, played sport, um, made sure my diet was sensible and, and, um, and, and just made, you know, I always get seven to eight hours sleep every night. I'm not, you know, these people that survive on three to four, is just crazy. So I'm an absolute stickler for, for managing myself so that I'm far more capable when, when we're on the, on the, on the, uh, the business playing field. Sleep one is so critical. I was listening to a podcast the other day, Joe Rogan podcast. Yep. I interviewed a um, neuroscientist, Matthew Walker, and he just said the people who think they can survive on three hours sleep um, is absolutely zero in yeah, the population. Like we actually need that. Does that mean that you say no to things sometimes in order to prioritise ah, Now, there's a flaw in my personality. So... <laughs> so um, I'm notoriously bad at saying no. I tend to just take way too much on. And in the last 12 months, we've taken way too much on on the, on the business front again. So between my wife and my PA, we've just now stepping back again to get things back under control. Um, and I'm getting much, much better. So it's, I'm over 50 now. So it's probably time to learn to start saying no. But I think the personality of being a clinician is you just want to help people. Mm. You know that that inherent part of of becoming a vet is also still in me that I just I really do enjoy helping people and so we get approaches all the time for mentoring sessions. I just want to have a quick coffee with you and you know it's going to be an hour. So yeah. we're now pulling back a little bit. Um, we still do it, but <clears throat> just getting a lot more control so I don't feel like I'm completely out of out of whack all the time. Having the value of having a good PA or having those kind of people who almost hold it <laughs> hold at the gate for you, absolutely drip for you. Um, a few things through is really, really key. And I've noticed she's got hold of my schedule and started putting big blackout chunks in it. To, and I go, why is that? And they say, so you can have some time <laughs> for yourself. Yeah, trust okay, me, got your future it. self will be happy. Got, gotcha. <laughs> right. Okay, I'll yeah. accept that. So what's next for you, Glenn? Look, what I'm really enjoying, Ali, is I'm still... still um, I guess growing some some really impressive businesses. Um, we've got a number of scale ups. A lot of them are in health as well as my Shark Tank investments. Yeah. Um, we're listing uh, Healthier Limited in the next um, couple of months. That's a, a, a merger between My Foot Doctor and All Sports, and I've been mentoring the All Sports guys. They're wonderful physios, and um, and been involved in the sh- in the um, cap table or the uh, shareholder of my foot doctor so we're growing that to a to an IPO um, but some of my other businesses there's some corporate activity going on so I enjoy 
being part of the CEO's support structure, someone they can rely on. I'll give them my thought bubble. I'll give them my opinion. They don't have to follow it, but at least you know, I'm part of their, their team that supports them in their journey. So a lot yeah. of it is, I guess, giving them the benefit of my sort of career as a, as a business person and letting them know my rookie mistakes and my failings as well as some of the opportunities I pursued and, and just handing over some of that experience mm. to make their, their journey a little easier. I really do enjoy that. Love uh, having time with my family. We're strong on every time we organise a holiday, we're already organising the next one after that. And I know it sounds damn lucky and we are uh, and we every time we go on holiday we say that we're just so lucky we've got the time to have with each other and mm. uh, and do these things together um, and we've got acreage so I enjoy spending a bit of time mucking around with, with uh, um, the acreage but um, you know, ultimately the, I, I really just enjoy having um, time as I said with my family and, and, and that's a real conscious choice like it, it is, is it is um, the opportunity and the you you know having the gratitude around it, but yeah, it's an absolute conscious choice. We got wherever you are, it what is. kind of ever role that you're that you're in. I think you get busy for the spite of it, and your and your ego almost starts demanding you look busy. And and uh, I'm walking away from that. I'm, I'm, the older I get, the the more my ego is getting pulled into line. Oh, I think we should start something around, you know, when people say, how was your weekend? Instead of busy, you just go, I had a really mediocre weekend. <laughs> I didn't do anything and well, I love it. <laughs> exactly. I sat on the couch and actually read, right. read the newspaper and yep. read a book and watched the <laughs> sun go down. To my son. <laughs> and had a glass of wine. It was actually very peaceful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't have to strut around with it. Well, look, coming full circle, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. If I were to offer that to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? You know, I, I think I want to be able to get to where I'm going to get to. Is it 90? Is it 100? Is it 80? It doesn't really matter. But as long as I'm, I'm healthy, um, I think as long as I feel that I've achieved the success parameters that I've set for myself, and, and that's to have a, a, a um, successful um, marriage and a successful family and, and have my family still deeply respect and love who I am, that's important to me. Um, uh, successful business career and, and um, making sure in that successful business c- career being a mentor and advisor and a supporter of others is, is important to me now yeah. as it was when I was growing my own businesses. Um, so I'm now part of other people's journeys and supporting them is, is deeply satisfying. Um, and then my community works, which, you know, when you're a CEO of a public company, it really is tricky to find time to do that part and, and um, coming from Western Queensland where small country town, everyone was always involved in all the different aspects of, of their society and their community and, and now that is probably time for me to step up and do a bit more on the um, on, on the time and the money uh, mm. into community works and, and um, we've set up our own foundation and uh, my wife and I are starting to do uh, a lot more around uh, some of the charities we support. Amazing, and that's the kind of gift that keeps giving back to you as well and well, your family. Well, it's deeply, deeply um, rewarding when when you see and and our charities. We've we've got the got the Pet Foundation as part of Green Cross, and um, we do some great things with some of the big animal welfare organisations. But um, for my family, on and our foundation that we've set up, um, it's very much about kids and and supporting kids be the best they can be. Yeah, beautiful. And you're still trying to figure out how to make it rain in Western Queensland. <laughs> so exactly, exactly. <laughs> you crack that nut. <laughs> exactly. Rain Everyone makers. will be happy. That'll be beautiful. It's been such a delight to chat with you. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Ali. Loved, loved, loved the chat. Thank you. 
If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.